Law, Policy, and Markets. It's a symptom of a problem where there's so much data and so much information and the ability of sophisticated people who want to sort of deceive or defraud. I think there's a, a long road ahead because even the most sophisticated companies in the world certainly don't have a firm handle just yet. Fundamentally, that the sort of human instinct to defraud each other, I don't see changing in any way. So I wouldn't expect to see a shortfall or a reduction in, in the frauds of the types that we're seeing. Welcome to Bill Bank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Mona Veswani, based in the UK, and Adam Fee, based in the United States, partners in Milbank's litigation and arbitration group. Let's get to it. Hi, Mona. Hi, Adam. Thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. My pleasure, Alan. Pleasure. So financial crimes and fraud are becoming much more sophisticated with digital tools, uh, scalability, and complexity we really just haven't seen before. Uh, it's not just a case of a lone accountant sitting in the corner doing something sinister. That sounded a little creepy, actually. Oh, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is not the horror show podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's now sinister and threatening. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> tough. good. Nice, nice to know that this is so scary. Uh, so before we jump in and go into detail about financial fraud and crime and things, one of the things that struck me from the news, it does seem like reports of financial fraud white collar crime, insider trading, and all the rest of it seem to be picking up. Mona, is it really the case that in the last few years we've seen a greater incidence of these types of activities, or is it maybe something else? I think that there's definitely been a greater incidence, but it's occurred, I think, over a number of years, and they're really only coming to light now, which isn't particularly surprising, I think, as the economic situation gets more strained. That is typically when you'd expect to see these sorts of financial frauds exposed. And how hard is it to detect? Is it the case now that it's easier to figure this out with um, you know, computer tracking and digital transactions, or is it kind of the same as before? My impression is that there are certain frauds, the more sort of petty type of frauds that occur within a finance department, which are definitely easier to detect using computer systems. But the ones that we're seeing a lot of in the press are really financial accounting misstatement frauds. And I think those are not the sorts of things that you can easily detect with an algorithm. And a lot of attention obviously turns on auditors and their role in detection. My experience is that not a great deal has changed there. Um, the kind of frauds that are coming to light now on the accounting side are very similar to the ones that I've been seeing you know, over 10, 15 years, and they're often detected by chance. Certain things happen in an audit, which happen the same way every year. In one year, something occurs, which is slightly different, and that leads to detection. So it, it, it doesn't seem to be a new thing in that respect. So Adam, I want to look at this with you for a second, because before you uh, entered private practice, you were an assistant U.S. attorney and on the prosecution side of a lot of these frauds and, and cases. When you're a prosecutor and you have the full investigatory power of the Department of Justice behind you and you start to dig into something, you sink your teeth into it, you think you've got a really good case. Why is it that sometimes that's actually wrong? Why is it sometimes the facts are more complicated? Uh, well, you do, like any human, you can end up getting blinders on. Uh, so just, just like Mona mentioned how frauds are detected through happenstance, cases come to the attention of prosecutors through happenstance. Oftentimes, prosecutors, like everyone else, 
are chasing headlines. Uh, I mean, I think I think a, a notable example of a bunch of recent trends was a Twitter hack. You know, that that came to attention essentially because the 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 hackers, although I'm not sure they really deserve that term, did such a silly job of exposing the breach. So that stuff comes at attention to prosecutors and everybody else. But the more subtle things, when you're involving large-scale corporate fraud, you're often subject to self-reporting of the corporations themselves, the accounting firms, whistleblowers, or you're chasing headlines like others. It's such a big playing field, uh, and there's a relatively small number of federal prosecutors to chase those types of cases around. So let's say a little bit more about whistleblowers, because they do have special protections, obviously, against retaliation. But it's a risky thing to do, right? It is. Whistleblowers, like all witnesses, have biases. And, you know, who, who knows what the statistics on this are? But whistleblowers can be very complicated individuals with very complicated motivations. And most often, the biggest problem with whistleblowers is they see a portion of the story. And that story can become distorted, good faith, bad faith, to the extent that they misunderstand or misperceive misconduct. And, you know, prosecutors, regulators are actually pretty good on the whistleblower side at understanding and doing an investigation before the investigation when they get something like that. Um, because there's been a, a number of sort of notable mishaps where whistleblower stories sounded pretty explosive and then upon investigation were not so interesting. Mona, outside the U.S., in U.K. jurisdictions, do whistleblowers have the same sorts of protections as a rule? They don't have as extensive a set of protections in the U.S., and they're certainly not incentivized in the same way to blow the whistle and and get a share of the proceeds. So it's a much less developed regime than, than you have. But they obviously have significant protections for whistleblowing and for actions may, that may be taken against them by the organization or their employers for whistleblowing. Let's look at the motivation, too, uh, for people committing financial fraud. And of course, some of these crimes are clearly, they clearly have victims. I mean, embezzlement and, and theft, stealing intellectual property and so forth. There's others where it's a little bit more indirect. Tax fraud may come to mind, market manipulation, certainly. In putting together these types of cases on one side or the other, how important is it to analyze the harm that's been done as opposed to just a strict violation of a particular rule or norm? So motivation is a tricky, a tricky thing. In U.S. criminal law, for most fraud offenses, motives are irrelevant. Uh, the problem is, you know, we represented a, a defendant who went to trial uh, a couple years ago in New York federal court. The allegation was essentially that he tipped a friend in advance of his own, the defendant's own private equity firm's transaction. The only person that that harmed when the tippy inevitably started trading was himself, the, the guy who allegedly gave out the secret information. You know, the, 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 the volume went up in the, in the pre-acquisition price and he had to pay more for the completed transaction. There was some you know, evidence that he actually gave the tip, but there's an argument that why in the world would anybody do that? A lot of that as a legal matter doesn't, it's irrelevant. You, you can't put on witnesses about motivations or lack thereof with some exceptions. So there's sort of like a a legal fiction that you sometimes have to adopt in these cases if you're on the government thinking about how to try to prove it, that we're we're essentially not gonna worry too much about the proof as to the why, other than the more obvious crass venal cases of someone trying to get money. And how about in a civil context? 
so you know in a civil context most of your concerns are things that won't end up in court so you know anecdotally motives matter for figuring out what happened and how bad it might be the most obvious one is if you have if you have some type of accounting fraud at the company who had a motivation to say hide bad numbers who might have done some sloppy work realized it and then tried to bury it just to avoid embarrassment because there's no real profit motive for most of the individual players in that type of fraud for the outsider fraud where somebody's you know trying to trick the CFO into wiring some money outside of the company that's a more obvious question of why and then the real question becomes how how did they do that can it be repeated how do we stop it thanks adam mona if you look at kind of cognitive bias and the role that it plays here you know, audit committees are supposed to be reviewing the work of CFOs. Outside auditors are supposed to be reviewing the company's books. And quite often, there's this kind of normal human reaction to assume that the numbers we're looking at are correct, to assume that people did the right thing. And it may blind us to patterns. And later, when some of these cases come out, people look at it and say, well, wait a second. You know, the accounting fraud or the embezzlement went on for, for seven years. How did no one notice this at the time? Is it Sometimes surprising in your experience are the cases you've dealt with where that's the case? The cases that I've come across um, actually don't really surprise me. I think that there is that inherent bias, but we also have to recognize quite a lot of limitation. There's quite a lot of limitation on what the auditors, internal and external, can really expose. And I mean, it's a very topical issue as to the extent to which you can expect external auditors to pick up fraud. Most of the big fraud cases in the press um, recently and in previous years have had, you know, major auditors who were involved. But I think that aside from the issue of bias, sometimes the structures in the audit process just aren't there to easily expose these more sophisticated frauds because so much of what the auditors do is in reliance on what management is telling them. I talked earlier about the the sort of chance discovery of large frauds. I, I did a fraud a few years ago involving metal trading and the trades were for very significant sums of money borrowed from banks and most of it was bogus. And the fraud was only discovered after years of auditing by one of the top auditors because 10 supposed counterparties of the company all accidentally faxed a response to the auditors from the same fax number when they were all supposed to be based in different parts of the world. And that's when the auditor thought there's something wrong here. And that was just happenstance. So I think it's, you know, the structures sometimes facilitate these frauds not being uncovered for quite a long time. So I want to stay with that topic and turn back to you, Adam, because if you've got people sending, trying to commit fraud, but doing something dumb, like using the same fax number, or as you mentioned before, the cybersecurity breach in Twitter, where allegedly a teenager in Florida and a few others, you know, accessed a number of accounts and were able to kind of maybe do people on the inside and do it in ways that were very transparent. How much of the frauds and uh, security breaches that we see of companies is nefarious and how much of it is merely stupid? And how much of just people wanting to take risks where maybe they push the envelope and that's one of the reasons they might be so sloppy? So it's a mixture of both. I, in the wake of natural disasters, we often find social scientists and people smarter than me commenting on how humans aren't that great at perceiving, realistically perceiving risks. 
And I think we have created a, like a business environment where it's very difficult to actually perceive how severe and how expansive risk might be. The Twitter hack. Twitter is a sophisticated company. They apparently had a method or at least had employees who believed it was okay to accept a phone call and share login information for what sounds like it was essentially admin login. As you said, teenagers, not terribly sophisticated. You know, we've had other cases where large, sophisticated corporations had payment controls that consisted of an email from uh, somebody within the treasury department. And with that email, you could send millions out the door to whomever, you know, the designated recipients was. These are things that in retrospect, everybody realizes we should have fixed this. We should have had more in place. So I, I don't know if I'd call that stupid. Um, I wouldn't call it stupid. It's just, it's difficult to perceive with the expansion of our abilities to interact with, you know, coworkers, customers, vendors, people who pay us money, people to whom we pay money, and how many vulnerabilities we now face in sort of the modern corporate environment. Yeah. So, so Mona, let's imagine I'm a, a general counsel or a chief security officer, maybe chief financial officer of a company. And I come to you and I say, I'm concerned because I'd like to make sure we have policies in place that allow our business to be safe. We don't want to be victims of, of, of fraud or bad activities. By the same token, we need streamlined operations. It has to be efficient. We can't have everything battened down. And I certainly don't have time personally to approve every single payment request, nor do I have the knowledge you know, of every transaction that we do at that level of detail. What are some of the pieces of advice that you would give me as to how to balance that need for streamlined operations with security? Well, I think it depends on the type of fraud you're trying to guard against. Where it is somewhat commoditized and you're talking about false invoicing or fake emails, those sorts of things, you can streamline your protection by the use of more technology. And I think there is a way in which you can do that without asking the, 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 the human component to be reviewing every transaction, which is also not foolproof. So for that kind of fraud, I think I'd be looking at very hard to see what's out there in the market that could be adopted in terms of technology and algorithmic checking. But there's another kind of fraud, which may be to do with your business partners. And that level of fraud is an exploitation of your trust as a human in your business dealing with that person. And that's not something that can be readily guarded against using computer technology. And I think it's much more about training of individuals, um, exposing them to experiences that other people have had about the slightly more sophisticated frauds. And that, I think, involves making sure people are receiving the appropriate uh, information and training. And actually, the advent of the money laundering regulations has been a great development in that sense, because it's made people in commerce so much more aware about the need to scrutinize why is this transaction being done? Why am I being told this? Does this make sense? And those are some of the ways in which you can you can guard against fraud and, and having you know several layers, few people checking each other's work so that you get a bit of distance because it's easy, it's really easy to to buy into that sort of confirmation bias if it's only you that's involved in approving that transaction. 
Yeah, somebody told me, gee, it's a shame we have such a shortage of trust in the world. And the answer back was, no, it's a shame we have a shortage of trustworthiness. <laughs> Excessive trust was not the problem. Uh, do companies put in place different controls, different procedures? Uh, are there changes in public policy and changes in, in, in the rules that are designed to prevent things from happening? You know, in the wake of the Enron case, which was a huge fraud, and we worked on their bankruptcy. You know, there were there were changes in market practice for sure. There's some legal changes, not too many, because the laws that were on the books then were actually adequate up to you know to, to the task. But there were certainly, I think, places where investors became more more vigilant. I think one of the headlines is is companies and industries are often fighting the last war rather than the current one. I mean, my I've been a lawyer for about 15 years, and my career started with two huge lines of cases, the sanction stripping cases affecting all of the major US banks and the LIBOR cases. If you look at the sanction stripping cases, there's been a technical fix. They're essentially they have software to find all the, the bad names that shouldn't be in their, their wires. And then there's like a compliance fix. And then on the other, you, then you see the fraudsters react. So there are still cases being brought today about banks transacting money that they shouldn't transact. Huge cases and all that is happening if you look at say the sanctions regime is people have gotten smarter the criminals have gotten smarter so instead of putting their name on a wire transfer putting the say say an iranian bank name on a wire transfer that runs through new york in us dollars they'll have these super legitimate middlemen operating in turkey uh, and i prosecuted a bunch of these cases and they're still they're still working their way through the federal courts here and is it more was it more common for the banks to kind of just be sloppy or willfully disregard stuff, or were there were there situations where banks really did know what was going on and kind of either helped or at least looked the other way knowingly? There was a continuum, and and this is all public. But if you look at some of the banks that has you know sub billion dollar fines, they were just relatively negligent. I think was the word that the authorities use. And then the classic example with the sanction stripping cases was Standard Chartered, where sadly for them, they found middle to upper management who realized the problem and essentially issued instructions to the to like the, the boots on the ground, the people who were actually inputting the dollar transmitting instructions, what words they could use that they thought weren't telling a lie, but still would evade uh, the sanctions detection software. And you find the same today. There's always a bit of a range. And how did those, like that last one, how does that come to light? Is it whistleblowers or is it regulators? So it, a, a, the, we haven't had one in a, in a little bit of, of time, but there was these span of like a decade where there, there were these industry-wide bank money laundering, sanction stripping, or market manipulation cases. And what would happen is like a, a small tripwire, either a whistleblower later on, but at least initially, like the software would catch one at the Fed. And then they would sort of open up the Pandora's box. And then what would, what, be, what would happen is once you found that at one bank, the authorities started knocking at the doors of every bank and essentially every box they opened uh, had, a, had a gift in it for the authorities because they were all doing it. So you could argue perhaps that's part of the unfairness of it because they take things that are industry standard, if inappropriate, and just you know sequential penalties against all the banks for the same conduct. Mona, that's that's another topic to kind of comes to mind then, this idea of industry standard. If everyone's doing it, is it improper? 
uh, the answer could be yes, of course, but when do, yes. how do you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, if the, the, the defense that, that's the, the market standard that we saw in, in the sort of LIBOR cases is not certainly in our jurisdiction generally viewed as a defense, particularly given recent case law, which says that honesty is judged by an objective standard, not by the the, the individual defendant's subjective standard, which is when they started bringing in play, oh, well, everyone in the market's doing this, therefore I did not believe it was dishonest. It can be deployed to show what is objectively honest or not, but I think simply saying that it's a market standard to do this, for example, in the libel context, isn't, isn't likely to be a defence only over here. Can I mention another area which may be of interest? The psychology of victims and fraudsters, certainly in the sorts of cases I deal with, is quite interesting. So I've had a number of cases where the victims have been extremely sophisticated, usually very senior people in banks and organisations. And when it becomes apparent to those around them, their advisors, that actually this may have been a fraud, it's quite interesting how long it takes them to emotionally come to terms with the fact that they have been defrauded. And often that has a practical consequence because taking you know, more time to, to initiate injunctive steps can result in difficulties in recovering. But I found the psychology, which is I suppose a very human thing of not really being able to accept that you've been duped, you've been stupid, or the person you've deposited trust in has actually been dishonest is, is quite interesting. But the, the other angle is also the, the fraudster's mindset they, in my experience, quite often see themselves as the victim and they genuinely think that when you take steps against them, they are being victimised and that makes it very hard to negotiate with them because, you know, they're never able to fully embrace what it is that's happened. So there's always another story or another angle that they're playing. Um, I remember as a prosecutor, I, you would meet some fraudsters who would, in the same way, it would, it would, it would always be complicated and They'd have a long story justifying the, the misdeeds they'd done. And then you'd have some, some guys, and they all happen to be guys, who just knew what they did and like, were sophisticated and they got caught. And the, the difference between the two is the, the latter set was so much more fun to talk to. And they were so happy to cooperate and start stitching at everybody else. The first set was like an extended therapy session that went nowhere because they didn't really view themselves as guilty. You'd have to like, you know, litigate some motions before they eventually had somebody, you know, talk sense into them. But the latter set, day one, ready to go, what do you need? How can we catch all my friends? <laughs> That's my, not, not very psychological, but, but uh, anecdotal experience. Yeah, that first group, it's almost like they don't know that what they did was wrong. Like even when you tell them, it's like, we well, have yeah, a, you know. Yeah, Amona's right that it's, it's, it's sort of captivating because the, there's, it's like some part of themselves, like the psyche would crumble if they were to admit to themselves that they did a thing with intention. It is interesting. But it's it's got a practical consequence, I think, in the way these cases turn out. So I had a case where we, our clients were a Kazakh company and the former management from whom we bought the company had stifled off about $200 million through false um, construction projects. And when they were exposed and our clients sued them they were absolutely convinced and they had a real point and a real chance of winning they lost in the end but they were absolutely convinced that the case against them was statute barred and that they should win on a technicality and so they were uninterested in 
having any negotiations with us. And I think that is also part of their psyche that, you know, they're not able to accept that what they've done is is wrong. I mean, the other thing that I find interesting with clients, they find it very hard to accept that there are there are limits to what you can do to recover assets with these sophisticated fraudsters. And they get really frustrated. They think that, you know, they, that we ought to be able to find everything. We ought to be able to get everything back really quickly and cheaply. And the, the methods that fraudsters use to hide their assets with offshore entities and nominees, all of those things, they can be busted, but they require commitment and investment. And I think that that's something that the clients sometimes find difficult to come to terms with. And the alternative is, is to think about, are they better off actually going for a criminal remedy, which may not give them a financial recovery, but could give them justice. And so those things, I think, you know, can be quite difficult emotionally for them to deal with when, when the fraud is discovered. Another topic which I think clients are often surprised about, at least in the U.S., is I, people sometimes assume that all frauds, there's some requirement that you have to report them to the authorities, and it's not necessarily the case. And you see this a lot in cyber fraud, especially. People have an, an assumption about, well, something bad happened. Obviously, we have to call the FBI. You don't always have to, often do not have to, and it's not always the best option. On the psychological point, the slight variation on this, a case we did at Millbank. We did a large, essentially, internal investigation and asset recovery exercise for like a, you know, a, a, a Fortune 100. Just on the psychological point, the, there was a relatively high-level woman who was the subject of the fraud. They essentially convinced her that the CEO had authorized these payments to go out the door. And the interesting sort of unknowable question was, there was it, it happened over the course of like two months, and they got her to authorize $50 million plus of transfers to Asia, purportedly on behalf of the CEO. There became sort of an unknowable point where it seemed as though the woman knew or must have known at some point during that period that this wasn't right. And there's like this hard judgment, like did, did she know, did part of her know and just couldn't accept like what she had been duped into doing? Like what, you know, what, what would it say about you? You can imagine yourself in this situation, right? You're a successful person and all of a sudden, you're in this situation where your mind sort of convinces yourself to proceed with it. So we've seen that, I think, from the inside as well. I'm hearing this kind of emotional blind spot, maybe in a way. That's just Adam and me. <laughs> Too emotional. <laughs> no, but like if, I, if I'm the victim of fraud, you're right. If I'm the victim of fraud, I don't, I don't, you know, I have the self image of being an intelligent person and of trusting people who are trustworthy. And if my judgment about whom to trust was wrong, if I've been betrayed, if I'm not actually as smart as I thought I was, I feel like an idiot. That, you know, challenges myself, my self-image appropriately. <laughs> and then if I'm committing fraud, you know, the same thing. I, I may have this image of myself as a good person and good people don't do bad things, right? And yet if I'm committing fraud in this kind of willful ignorance that there really is some, there are consequences to this. There are, there are ways that there's harm being done and what I'm doing is not right. You know, if some of the, some of these fraudsters you're describing are sort of discounting that, that, and maybe willfully or, or not being blind to the moral consequences of their actions because it's contrary to their self-image. And at some point, you, you know, sophisticated people are aware of the consequences of identifying a fraud. And in a way, I've seen cases where they essentially, be, you almost, they almost become complicit in it because they understand that if they now raise their hand, you know, all the questions that will be asked, all the jobs that will be lost, you know, the dollars, et cetera, 
I mean, that one's actually a good example. Once, once they figured out it was a fraud, half, like the CFO and half of the, the audit function lost their jobs. Because a fraud is a stress test in some ways, whether it's an outsider fraud or an insider fraud, it, it essentially exposes all these weaknesses that, you know, through habit or routine or whatever, we're allowed to fester. I want to look for a second to this internationally, because obviously you're both practicing law in different countries. Adam, you're, you're, you're here in the States and, and Mona, you're in, in Britain. And we've dealt with these clients around the world in Asia and Latin America and elsewhere looking at the multi-jurisdictional complications of dealing with financial crimes and fraud. When companies are facing operations in places where, where the rules may be different, rules for investigations, rules for what constitutes an offense, rules around disclosure requirements if there is an event that happens, uh, how do companies manage that? Are there, are there situations you've seen where those multi-jurisdictional complications played a role? Yeah, so the you know the, probably the the highest profile issues we've seen cross border wise have often involved corruption. It can be a type of fraud because you'll find that people in country in some of these jurisdictions, where as you said the rules are different, understand that the corporate parent won't let them you know pay bribes to local officials to try to improve their position, so they'll hide it. They'll hide it from from the corporate parent. It's a it can be a tricky thing to find to discover. Because you, you essentially have people who understand the culture, who understand the rules, who might understand the surveillance the company has put in place. Uh, and yet for the good of the company, in a way, and also for the good of their own success executives, will try to evade it. The consequences can be pretty rough for the corporate parent because this is something that DOJ has worked for decades to focus upon and has had probably their biggest wins. There's likely no more fruitful uh, source of cross-border cooperation for DOJ in terms of the dollar value of settlements and the close coordination with foreign authorities than corruption. The most notable examples, some of the most notable examples you see in recent years are in Brazil, uh, where there are U.S. issuers with Brazilian subsidiaries that one of the most notable examples, they're paying bribes to the healthcare administrator for the Brazilian government to get their dialysis machines put in every Brazilian hospital, which is billions and billions and billions of dollars. They did this in a way that was disguised as essentially corporate hospitality. And once people started to peel back the veil, DOJ, they discovered it at one company. And the issue is this was sort of an industry-wide phenomenon and DOJ can then just sort of skip from company to company. Uh, Mona, what about the multi-jurisdictional or international aspects of investigation and asset tracing? That is something that is very commonly done now because when assets are stolen or defrauded from people, obviously the very first thing that you do as a fraudster is you make sure that you move those assets around into jurisdictions which are not transparent and where it would be difficult to retrieve those assets. But you know, the jurisdictions where fraudsters like to hide their assets are not usually the ones where it's safest for them to keep it and where they can enjoy them. So in cases that I've been involved in, whilst you might have shell structures like offshore trusts in jurisdictions that are hard to penetrate, you often find that the valuable asset is in London or New York or Paris or somewhere where actually you have got great courts who are going to be able to help quickly retrieve those assets. 
You know, one of the issues I remember dealing with myself, I was working for my mentor and at the time the uh, head of Milbank's LA office, Frank Logan, who ran our banking practice and went on to run the firm. And he had been involved in a number of high profile banking matters on a transactional side, but many of them involved asset freezes and account freezes. Uh, in particular, we were dealing with a situation after Iraq invaded Kuwait of questions with respect to the effectiveness of freeze orders in London versus New York versus the Middle East and in Europe, and making sure the timing of remedies were done in such a way that assets wouldn't be moved just ahead of when the regulators or the uh, civil uh, orders went into effect in different jurisdictions. How hard is it to make sure once you're on the trail uh, tracing assets, once you're trying to attach accounts or freeze accounts and keep funds from moving, given that many of them are actually moving through money centers at some point in the process, how hard is it to coordinate and lay out that plan when you're investigating uh, a significant cross-border fraud case or, or case involving uh, money laundering or something of that sort? It's not easy, but it's certainly not impossible. And I think the key is to try and map it out as much as possible before you press the button on the first court proceeding. So we had a case a few years ago where we were simultaneously freezing in Jersey, Guernsey, Cayman Islands, and also in Switzerland, having to plan across the different time zones to make sure that as soon as we got the freezer in one, we were ready to go in, into the next jurisdiction. And obviously some things you can't plan beforehand because the situation is evolving and you're hopefully discovering more assets as the exercise proceeds. So it it's not an easy job, but it's something that's obviously critical and can be done. I've tried to do this with the help of law enforcement and without. And while that's that's really up to chance in some ways, whether law enforcement takes an interest in your efforts to recover assets. It, I think it's one of the ways, if you're lucky enough to get their interest, that you can get sort of sort of get ahead of the game. We were trying to recover money for a client, some in Hong Kong, some in other jurisdictions. The local Hong Kong financial frauds task force happened to take an interest in it, and we were able to sort of stay ahead of the game because they obviously have abilities to peek into banks and accounts and account holders and transfers in ways that are quicker, if not all that much, but quicker than our ability to get to a court and get an order to, to peek into those same places. So that, that can often be an more art than science, convincing law enforcement in any jurisdiction to, to care about what's happening, but it's obviously a, a powerful tool. I really agree with you, Adam. I mean, when I started doing this sort of work years ago, it wasn't viewed with favor to involve the criminal authorities because the mantra was, you would lose control, you would get bogged down in the bureaucracy for a long time, the assets might be frozen, but you certainly wouldn't get your hands on them. But I think that's changed quite a bit. And I think actually, um, the smart asset tracers are the ones that know how to interleave both the criminal and the civil processes to, to make sure that you get the quickest and best remedies, because it's ever harder just to rely on the civil process fraudsters have become you know pretty creative at hiding their assets so i think you do need to engage with the authorities if you can nowadays and if someone is a victim of a fraudster if you have a corporate client or even an individual or a group of individuals who come are they likely in many cases to recover the assets or the value that's been lost or is it sometimes just a situation where they just want the, the problem to stop and they want the person to be caught I think it is sometimes the case that victims do need to accept that they are very unlikely to get a financial recovery 
at least unless they're willing to invest. And quite often you do see victims who start off very enthusiastically, but obviously as the exercise becomes more time consuming and expensive, they quite understandably become less engaged and less interested. But it's, it's, it's an exercise that requires persistence and commitment. And sometimes you do have to accept that maybe the, the, the right answer for you as a victim isn't to chase for the money forever, but rather just to get justice and, and some sort of punishment for, for the fraudster. And in, in many, most of the cases we may see, it, it's really the collateral consequences that a client is worried about. You know, we, we, we had a client who had a breach where somebody got into one of their, their e-commerce sites and stole some data. That's bad. And everybody was very focused on that and making sure the breach didn't work or the breach wouldn't work again. But the real concern is, it, do people lose confidence, the public, and when they give their credit card numbers to buy some shoes or a t-shirt, that it's going to go to someone abroad who will use it for nefarious purposes. So there, there's sort of a second level set of victimization that's that's a real concern for most or many of the clients. I think that victims should also remember that quite often, even though the fraudsters disappeared with your money, there may be third party accessories with deep pockets who have helped that fraudster or who may have insurance that are worth targeting. And so you can often get recovery against perhaps the offshore trustee if they've been involved in uh, dishonestly assisting the fraudster. So it's worth looking around uh, at other deep pockets. Yeah, and let's talk about insurance for a second. What diligence do insurers require now that may be different than what they required before in offering coverage against financial fraud? Everybody now has cyber insurance, but almost really no one understands how it should apply or what do care really means under those circumstances. So when these policies put some sort of burden on the policyholder and you can you can toy with the language that they might use there's always some responsibility to, to put in systems in place that are reasonably designed to avoid the loss of data there's very little litigation about this but there's a lot a whole lot of questions when a massive breach happens what is due care what should have been done so what happens i think is companies hue to to the conservative position of just buying off-the-shelf cybersecurity policies and trying to put off-the-shelf procedures in place. And there are lots of vendors out there who are happy to charge healthy fees to give you those. You know, the problem can be that you then think you have something that's good enough to withstand scrutiny from a regulator or your coverage provider, but it may not be a perfect fit for the organization. So we sometimes see these sort of misfits where they have an off-the-shelf policy. Nobody in the company really understands how it's supposed to work in practice, and, and sometimes they are unhappy with its application. Does the insurance in that case risk making people complacent or is it more like the fire insurance one has on your home where, yeah, you know, you've got the coverage, but you still don't want your house to burn down? I think it's the latter. I think people are so attuned to the fallout from a really bad headline that you've lost everybody's data and nobody wants to use your company anymore, hypothetically, that the insurance is, is a bit of an afterthought in that sense. But there has been and there will be more litigation, I'm sure, because there are real losses now. And what we have now in the United States for the very first time is a law in California that gives a private cause of action for a data breach. We've never had that in any jurisdiction. So the insurance questions will become more scrutinized because as always, there's, there's real money on the line now that the plaintiff's bar has a method to extract financial payout on the back of a data breach. And if you look at this interplay between 
the remedy that may be pursued in a civil action by victims trying to seek restitution or you know, compensation for the damage that they've suffered from a financial crime, and the criminal remedies, uh, fines, civil forfeiture, disgorgement, maybe even some kind of restitution concepts as well, depending on the jurisdiction. How do those two work together when there's obviously only a limited amount of funds available to satisfy any of these particular claims or, or payment obligations? It obviously will vary from each jurisdiction, but in the UK, you know, there's a fairly developed system for victims to get compensation from from assets of the fraudster as part of the criminal process. And it's a question, I think, in those cases really of timing and where you are in the queue and also uh, obviously how much there is there is there but i think the the law has sought to become more developed to enable victims to use the criminal processes to get financial compensation i was just going to flag the somewhat curious issue that a lot of what uh, doj does when looking abroad is totally disconnected from what you might describe as the victims so you know look, look at what we've done uh, in venezuela we've chased PEDVESA corruption, PEDVESA is sort of the state-run oil uh, concern in Venezuela. We've chased PEDVESA corruption around the world. We've extracted billions of dollars in fines from companies that did business with PEDVESA based on money laundering or corruption theories. All of that money is going to the U.S. Treasury, while there's obviously people who have suffered as a result of sort of the systemic ills of corruption around the world. Uh, I'm not saying that the U.S. should be sending checks to people in different countries, but there is a disconnect theoretically or practically as well between the, the way we recover and, the, and the, the way the funds are used sometimes. Let me ask a last question to both of you. Uh, and this is a topic that came up in an earlier podcast episode we did with respect to cybersecurity. This idea that as systems become more interconnected, as economies become more digital and digitally reliant, they become both more robust and quicker and efficient, but they also become more vulnerable. And that very criticality of those connections raises the stakes for vulnerability. If you put on your, you pull out your crystal ball and you look ahead, say, 10 years from now, would you expect that financial fraud and other uh, similar crimes will become more prevalent, more sophisticated, or because of the vigilance and maybe implementation of AI and these digital networks, because it'd be so hard to do it that maybe we'll start to see less in the way of uh, at least run-of-the-mill violations and, and breaches? I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I've heard more rosy predictions about the near future, bringing some developments that will give us superpowers to combat fraud, whether that's AI, whether that's training or changes in culture, or just the fact that young people will be holding executive positions and have a generally a better understanding of what it means to be on the internet and have fraudsters all around you. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, if you just look at the way our politics in the United States is happening right now, I don't think it's irrelevant to corporate and corporate fraud. Uh, we can't even identify who are the real speakers on social media. It's a symptom of a problem where there's so much data and so much information and the ability of sophisticated people who want to sort of deceive or defraud to build up profiles that sound compelling and true. Uh, I think there's a, a long road ahead. Uh, because even the most sophisticated companies in the world certainly don't have a, a firm handle just yet. I agree with that. I think that 
we are so creative that we will come up with new ways of committing frauds. And even though AI will bring an end to perhaps some things that are being done now, it will facilitate new modes of committing frauds. But fundamentally, that the sort of human instinct to defraud each other, I don't see changing in any way. So I wouldn't expect to see a shortfall or a reduction in, in the frauds of the types that we're seeing. That's good. So you'll still be both busy. Yes, that's the bottom line. <laughs> or retired, but... <laughs> yeah, one of, those. one of those. Well, thank you both very much. I know you're busy and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks to you. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.